Hello everyone, my name is Nicholas Haskins, host of the 5th Annual Livestream for the Cure. This year, podcast partners and content creators from all over the world will join me from May 19th to the 23rd to try to raise $15,000 for the Cancer Research Institute. Each year, I am reminded time and again of the incredible power and compassion of the indie creators, audiences, and podcasters who set aside their time, energy, and money to make this event a success. I am overwhelmed again this year with an outpouring of support and passion from others who are dedicated to the goal of a future immune to cancer. And wanted to take a moment while you're listening to this show and say, thank you. Thank you, and I'm so eternally grateful for you. I like to say together, we can make a difference. And because of you, we have. From the bottom of my heart and from the entire team that makes Livestream for the Cure possible, thank you. To learn more about this year's event, please visit LivestreamForTheCure.com. Warning. The following podcast contains mature content. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, and welcome to the jury room, where we dissect some of the most heinous, some of the most unthinkable, and some of the most monstrous crimes to ever scar the earth. From cannibalistic serial killers to decades-old unsolved mysteries, these stories are sinister enough to keep you up at night. We all know her name. It was smeared across tabloids around the world, dissected on international news, whispered intense conversations at dinner tables, as families argued over her innocence or guilt. Amanda Knox. The American woman convicted in Italy of murdering her roommate, Meredith Kircher, on a study abroad trip, then exonerated after spending nearly four harrowing years in a foreign prison. I was never a defendant, innocent until proven guilty, she once said. I was sly a psychopath, dirty, a slut, guilty till proven otherwise. But is Amanda really innocent, the victim of a botched police investigation and a sexist lynching by the media? Or is she anything but a victim, a sadistic, sex-crazed monster who slashed the throat of her innocent roommate? Welcome to today's episode of The Jury Room. It's not hard to see why so many students fall in love with the medieval city of Perugia, Italy. Sitting on a cluster of rolling hills, Perugia is famous for its rich art and gothic architecture. It's also home to thousands of Italian and international students alike, studying at the many esteemed universities Perugia boasts. In many ways, the students are the spirit of the city, keeping it young, vibrant, and exciting. Hip college bars emerge from historic cobblestone roads. Nightclubs sit down the street from ancient Italian churches. 
For many international students, Perugia is like a fairy tale. It promises adventure, exploration, and boundless knowledge. When Amanda Knox arrived in the hilltop city as a junior in college, she hoped to find herself there, among the Renaissance art and enchanting stone bridges, dreamy Italian boys, thought-provoking poetry, and new and interesting friends. When she first opened the door of her new cottage apartment, her head was filled with nervousness and excitement of an unknown, wide-open future. On that day, she had no idea she would be trading that cottage for a cold, unforgiving Italian prison cell. On that day, she had no idea that she was about to be found guilty for murder. Amanda arrived in Italy just 10 days after her 21-year-old British roommate, Meredith Kircher. Kircher had already become familiar with the narrow, winding roads, the cotton candy sunsets, and the bustling student life of Perugia when Amanda Knox first walked into her life. For Meredith, this year abroad meant everything. Just like Amanda, she had dreams of mastering the language, discovering a new culture, finding romance, and making new friends. Like Amanda, she was set to spend a whole year in the central Italian city, a year of endless exploration and excitement. Meredith's father, John, later said that Meredith fought so hard to get out there. There were quite a few setbacks, but she was determined to go and kept persisting and eventually got what she wanted. Meredith was focused on European studies and specifically passionate about politics. She dreamed of becoming a journalist or of working for the EU. Studying in Italy meant surrounding herself with art, architecture, and history. The city streets of Perugia were a classroom in themselves. Tragically, Meredith's dreams never got a chance to come true. She was found dead in her bedroom, her body covered in a blood-soaked duvet, less than two months after arriving in Italy. The police were quick to point blame at her American roommate, Amanda Knox. Amanda and Meredith weren't particularly close, but they weren't enemies either. They went for the occasional drink together and attended concerts together, but they never quite hit it off on a deep level. Other than their love for Italy and determination to find themselves in this new country, the two women didn't have much in common. Amanda was outgoing, goofy, and extremely naive. Meredith was cool, calm, and collected in comparison. Meredith and Amanda shared their flat with two Italian law students. All four girls were kind to each other, but none were best friends. Amanda had a strong zest for life, and she knew how she wanted to spend her time in this new foreign country. She went clubbing, hooked up with boys, smoked weed, and read books. She was determined to live in the moment, 
enjoy her youth, and let the feeling of freedom sweep her up. She described her first blissful weeks in Perugia in the Netflix documentary Amanda Knox. Those first weeks, I was discovering what the city was. I was living with these Italian women and a British girl my age, who was super sophisticated. And we had this beautiful house that overlooked the valley, like I was owning it. Amanda landed a job as a bartender and bottle girl at a local neighborhood bar, La Chique. She spent her days exploring the city and getting to know the people around her. She spent her nights serving alcohol to buzzed locals and overexcited international students. On the nights she didn't have to work, she let herself live. She went to clubs or bars, often with Kircher. Even though the two weren't extremely close, when she wasn't at the bars, Amanda was wandering the moonlit medieval streets, marveling at their history. Or she was smoking weed, or she was going to concerts. It was at one such concert, a classical music concert, that she first laid eyes on Raphael Solecito, a 23-year-old Italian software engineering student. Raphael wasn't the first man Amanda had been charmed by in Italy, but he was the first she seriously fell for. Raphael, he fell hard too. In the Netflix documentary, Raphael remembered the first moment he saw Amanda. There was this girl alone. She was very, very pretty. When I looked at her, she looked at me back. I was so shy that even if she looked at me, she smiled at me. I was turning back and said, is she looking at somebody in my back? It was not, it was me. The two fell hard and fast. For the next five days, they were practically inseparable. Together, they took to the streets of the city, holding hands as they stumbled over cobblestone paths, sharing pizzas, taking pictures. They spent night after night at Raphael's apartment. He lived alone, so they were free to have sex, smoke weed, and watch movies without interruption. That's exactly what they did. Even though their whirlwind romance only lasted about a week before the murder, it felt like the real deal for both of them. They had an intense and extremely intimate relationship right off the bat. Amanda even recounts in her memoir how Raphael would wash her hair and clean her ears with Q-tips. Their love language clearly was touch. On November 1st, 2007, Amanda spent the night at Raphael's, her new routine. She was supposed to work that night, but her boss, Patrick, texted her at the last minute that she didn't need to come in. The bar was slow due to an Italian holiday, he said, and they didn't need more staff that night. Amanda was thrilled to have the night off. According to her account, she settled into a night of movies, books, and romance 
with her new Italian lover. They got high and had sex. Afterward, she read to him out loud from a German edition of Harry Potter. Then they fell asleep. The next morning, on November 2nd, 2007, Amanda kissed her boyfriend goodbye and headed back to her own flat. The plumbing in Raphael's apartment wasn't working and she needed to take a shower. She arrived home at 10.30 a.m. and noticed right away that the front door was cracked open. She didn't think much of this. Her roommates often left the door ajar when they ran to the market for a quick errand. Once inside, she headed straight to the bathroom to take a shower. She noticed drops of blood on the sink. She thought she might be bleeding from her pierced ears, which often happened, and turned the shower on without another thought. When she got out, she noticed more blood on the bath mat. This wasn't little droplets from a pierced ear. It was a big bloody splotch maybe the size of an orange. Again, Amanda didn't jump to any sinister conclusions. Naively, she assumed that one of her roommates must have accidentally cut themselves, or maybe they were on their period. This is a moment that is highly suspicious for many who doubt Amanda's innocence. Why wasn't she scared? or at least concerned. Why weren't alarm bells going off? Is it possible that this 20-year-old girl was really that naive? Then, she noticed feces in the toilet. Finally, she became paranoid. Her roommates were notoriously clean. On one occasion, Meredith had actually asked Amanda to scrub the toilet after Amanda left streak marks there. So, there was no way her roommates would have forgotten to flush. Amanda made her way to the hallway where she noticed Meredith's door was closed. Her other roommates were away on holiday. She hoped that Meredith was just sleeping, but was scared an intruder might be lurking in the house. She called the only person in the city that she really knew and trusted, Raphael. She asked him to come right away. When he arrived, he was immediately struck by the condition of the house. He wondered why Amanda had taken so long to be suspicious. There was a broken window in one of the roommate's bedrooms. A rock from the garden was on the floor beside it. The blood in the bathroom was disturbing and even scary. Why wasn't Amanda more paranoid? I went back there. I saw all this mess, Raphael recalls in the documentary. It was very weird. And I was a little bit surprised that she took a shower inside her house without having the anxiety of it. The couple knocked on Meredith's door but there was no answer. They shouted her name and were met with a chilling silence. They tried her doorknob and found that her door had been locked. She never locked her door. Amanda begged Raphael to break down the door, 
but he wasn't strong enough. Without another thought, he dialed the police. And now, for a quick break. My name is Dr. Stacy Hughes, and I co-host Oklahoma Side Slings in the Sooner State with my husband, Zachary. Hey, everyone. Have you ever heard the term going postal? Have you ever heard of Machine Gun Kelly? Not the singer, the outlaw. Did you know both Going Postal and Machine Gun Kelly originated in Oklahoma? Maybe you've heard the unbelievable cases involving serial killer Roger Dale Stafford, or perhaps a cannibalistic plot against a young girl named Jamie Bolin. Or perhaps you've heard of the unspeakable, unsolved murder of Karina Saunders. What about the Bever family familicide, or the case of Julius Jones, an innocent man on death row? These are just some of the incredible cases that we explore on Oklahoma side slayings in the Sooner State, a true crime podcast that delves into the murderous acts of Oklahomans across the Sooner State. Don't miss new episodes bi-weekly on Wednesdays. Oklahoma side is available on all major podcast platforms. Remember, it can happen anywhere to anyone. Stay safe, protect yourself and your loved ones. Now... Back to the show. Hello. Good morning. Listen. Raphael began his nervous call. Someone made a mess, and there is a door closed. And there are also blood marks in the bathroom. Even though Raphael dialed the military police, the officers who arrived were with the postal police. They were trained in handling technology and mail fraud, not murder scenes. The investigation was botched from the beginning. The postal police officers allowed Amanda and Raphael to remain in the house. At the same time, one of the Italian roommates returned home from vacation with a friend, and they were welcomed inside too. As the roommates and their friends wandered through the house, the entire crime scene was contaminated. Of course, the police didn't know right away that this was a murder scene. There hadn't been a murder in the city of Perugia in 20 years. Such brutal and grotesque violence wasn't exactly anyone's first guess. In fact, the officers were so unconcerned that they even refused to break down Meredith's door, insisting it was an invasion of her privacy. So when an officer wasn't looking, one of the friends did the deed himself, and the newly opened doorway revealed a grisly scene. 21-year-old Meredith Kircher was dead, on the floor, naked, her throat slashed, she was covered in a blood-stained duvet, only her foot hanging out of it. Blood was splattered around the room in messy and frantic streaks, dripping from the walls, spilling into the carpet, soaking into her clothes, which were strewn carelessly about the floor. There were cut marks on her chin and neck, indicating that she may have been tortured. An autopsy later revealed that she had been sexually assaulted. Immediately, Amanda and the rest of the household were ushered outside. 
Amanda didn't see inside her roommate's bedroom, but she heard the police say there was blood everywhere. She heard them say Meredith's throat had been slit. Then the front door closed behind her, and she was left to stand on the sidelines to wonder in terror what might have happened to Meredith. As she waited, she curled into Raphael's arms, seeking comfort from the way she knew how, through intimacy. He kissed her and held her. This behavior was viewed as completely inappropriate and even offensive to some. Why wasn't she crying, screaming, throwing herself on the floor? Why was she making out with her boyfriend? In her memoir, Waiting to be Heard, Amanda recalls this moment, describing herself as young and scared, in need of comfort. Watching the video of this now infamous moment, it's hard to see it any other way. While tabloids would later report that the couple were making out and being completely inappropriate and disrespectful. In reality, Raphael was simply holding her. He gave her a few loving kisses. They were not making out. They were two young kids supporting each other during a deeply distressing situation. By then, the lead prosecutor of the case, Giuliano Menini, had arrived on the scene. Menini, who idolized Sherlock Holmes and dreamed of breaking a huge case of his own, was immediately suspicious of Amanda and Raphael. He was struck by Amanda's supposed lack of emotion, believing it was strange that she was being intimate with her boyfriend instead of crying or freaking out. But it wasn't just her behavior that caught Menini's attention. He was also perplexed by the fact that Meredith's body was covered by a duvet. In the Netflix documentary, he says, A woman who has killed tends to cover the body of female victims. A man would never think to do this. In actuality, just so we are clear, it's not uncommon for men to cover women with blankets after a murder. This is especially common among first-time murderers who might be shocked or ashamed by their own behavior and want to cover up their deed. Other killers, men and women, tend to cover their victims in a blanket if they had an emotional or personal attachment to them. Others still actually use blankets as suffocation or strangulation devices. Menini's belief that this is something only women do is purely speculation and not based in any actual research or fact. Menini also believed that the break-in was staged. Nothing from the house had been stolen and no evidence was found that the wall surrounding the home had been scaled. That told Menini that the perpetrator most likely knew Meredith and that she might have even invited them inside. When the autopsy revealed that Meredith had been sexually assaulted, 
Menini immediately thought of Amanda and Raphael's intimate behavior following the discovery of the body. He and his team jumped to the conclusion that this must have been some kind of drug-fueled sex game gone wrong. Clearly, Amanda was a sex-crazed lunatic, so this theory made perfect sense. Right? The next day, November 3rd, Amanda was asked to return to the house. While it was still an active crime scene, officers wanted Amanda to go through the knife drawer and make sure nothing was missing. It was then that Amanda finally broke down, staring at the kitchen knives. The dark reality of the situation finally hit her. She became hysterical completely overcome with panic. She started smacking her ears with the palm of her hands. To Manini, this panic attack may as well have been an admission of guilt. He did not stop to consider that she was a person in shock, suffering a panic attack during a highly stressful and terrifying situation. Instead, he believed that she was hitting her ears as though she was hearing something. Maybe she was hearing Meredith's screams. He suggested in the documentary or revealing something had happened the night of the murder. In response to the knife situation, Menini decided to wiretap Amanda and Raphael's phones. Suddenly, they were being thrown into the center of this investigation before they could comprehend the magnitude of what was happening. They were suspects, guilty until proven innocent. First, I showed not enough emotion, Amanda wrote in her memoir. Then, I showed too much. She learned quickly that no matter what she did or how she behaved, the police and the media would find a way to crush her. As soon as word got out of Meredith's murder, the media hounded. Journalists from around the world traveled to the little city of Perugia to cover the crime. The idea of an attractive British student being murdered on a study abroad trip by her attractive American roommate was like gold for the tabloids. This wasn't just any robbery or assault gone wrong. It was twisted, shocking, and even unbelievable. In this documentary, Nick Pisa, British journalist, and one of the leading reporters of the case recalled, we already had good pictures of Meredith. She was a terribly attractive woman. And now we've got Amanda Knox involved as well. Pretty blonde, 20-something, it had the sexual intrigue, girl-on-girl -girl crime if you like. Dozens of cameras surrounded the murder house at all times. Every move Amanda made was captured for the world to see. In the meantime, Raphael went into the police office for questioning. Amanda was not to be questioned that day but she went with her boyfriend to show support. Raphael's interrogation was brutal and intense. 
The police tried adamantly to break him down. At first, he insisted that Amanda was with him the entire night of the murder. But after hours of interrogation, in which the police told Raphael that Amanda is a cow and a slut who never had feelings for him, Raphael changed his story. He said that Amanda didn't arrive at his house until 1 a.m. and that she told Raphael not to tell the police that. In the documentary, Raphael explains, That night, I know that I was in my apartment. I know I spent the night with Amanda. I know she slept with me, but they were not satisfied. They were pushing and aggressive and they became the worst of the worst. This policeman told me that Amanda lied all the time. She was a stupid slut, a cow that didn't care about me. Your situation is very, very bad. After a long time, the reality around you turns to twist and don't be so clear. Meanwhile, in the waiting room, Amanda was doing yoga stretching to relax. She did the splits. Around her, witnesses, including some of Meredith's close friends, watched in shock. It looked as though she was playing around, not taking the situation seriously. It was unbelievable. Soon, the media was reporting that Amanda was doing cartwheels at the police station. Only a murderer the tabloids insisted, would perform cartwheels in a station just days after a kill. According to Amanda, though, the cartwheels never happened. She explained, I never did a cartwheel. I did do the splits once. I was reacting in an upset manner, and I was upset. I could have been more sensitive to the people around me. That's what I think was the major issue was I could have been more sensitive to the people around me. Amanda, who was not supposed to be questioned that night, was interrogated next. She was told that her boyfriend had turned on her, that the police now know that she was lying to them. Desperate to prove her innocence, she gave them her cell phone. She told them to look through her texts, claiming they wouldn't find anything suspicious. Amanda didn't realize that her broken Italian would come back to haunt her so disastrously. In her phone, the police found an exchange of texts from the night that Meredith was murdered. They found the text from her boss, Patrick, telling her that she didn't need to come in for her shift that night, and they found her response. Amanda's response was written in Italian. Her text translates word for word. We will see each other later. Have a good night. She intended to say, see you later, but didn't realize that the American phrase doesn't have a direct translation in Italian. We will see each other later. To Italians literally means I will meet up with you later. To the police, this indicated that Amanda had met up with Patrick at some point that night, which meant she had been lying about her alibi. 
And now, for a quick break. Alright, just wanted to take a moment out to thank today's sponsor. Today's sponsor of this episode is Podcorn. Podcorn is a marketplace connecting podcasters to amazing podcast sponsorship opportunities, such as host read ads, interview segments, topical discussions, and much, much more. They even do reviews, you can do giveaways, there's a lot of different opportunities on there. With Podcorn, there is no middleman. Podcasters of all sizes can browse and choose opportunities right on the platform, set their own rates, and collaborate with brands directly without any exclusivities. You never give up any of your rights to your podcast, and Podcorn is here to support you at every step and ensure you are protected and compensated for the work that you do for brands. The Marketplace mission is to give podcasters transparency, creative freedom, and full control of how and when they monetize. Make sure you click the link in my show notes to sign up for Podcorn and start browsing sponsorship opportunities. Again, thanks for Podcorn for sponsoring this episode. Make sure you guys go check them out. Monetize your content. Get your name out there with brands. That's podcorn.com forward slash podcasters. Go visit the marketplace and monetize your content. Now, back to the show. Throughout her interrogation, Amanda was repeatedly slapped in the back of the head while the investigator shouted, Does that help you remember? After excruciating hours of violent questioning, she finally broke down. She started to see images of her front door and Patrick. She thought she could hear Meredith screaming. All at once, she decided that those images must mean she was there that night. She wrote a written statement for the police accusing Patrick of murder. This was absolutely a low point for Amanda, and another piece of the story that makes some question her innocence. Why would she accuse an innocent person if not to get the prosecutors off her back? How could she just see memories that never even happened? Clearly, she is guilty of something. Clearly, she knows more than she's willing to admit. Later, Amanda recalled the moment in her memoir she writes, I didn't confess. I was interrogated. They acted like my answers were wrong. They told me I was wrong, that I didn't remember correctly, that I had to remember correctly, and if I didn't, I would never see my family. While a false confession might seem hard to believe, it's actually not uncommon. Neither is changing your story to match what the police are trying to get you to say, just as Raphael did during his interrogation. According to psychologist Saul Kassan from the John Jay College of Criminal Justice, false confessions are far from rare. 
Science Mag explains, drawing on more than 30 years of research, Kassan found that standard interrogation techniques combine physiological pressures and escape hatches that can easily cause an innocent person to confess. He explained how young people are particularly vulnerable to confessing, especially when stressed, tired, or traumatized. During her memoir, Amanda described herself as exhausted and stressed during the interrogation. Additionally, the slapping and abuse by the police officers were deeply traumatic. Regardless, Amanda did submit a written statement that put her at the scene of the crime. On November 6th, 2007, Amanda, Patrick, and Raphael were all arrested for the murder and sexual assault of Meredith Kircher. In jail, Amanda finally had a chance to be alone with her thoughts. She reflected on the last week, scrutinizing over every detail, every memory, without the stress of the interrogating officers surrounding her. She realized that the images she had seen had never actually happened. She asked to write another statement, declaring that Patrick was innocent, but the police refused to take it. Still, Patrick was released after two weeks. His alibi was solid, and it was clear that he was not involved in any way with the crime. Investigators concluded that Amanda had falsely accused him in order to save herself. The police decided to scare another confession out of her. They sent her to the prison doctor who ran some standard blood tests to make sure she was healthy. When the results came back, however, Amanda was thrown into yet another nightmare. The prison doctor told Amanda that she had tested positive for AIDS. Amanda was completely devastated. She was horrified. She was broken. She kept a prison diary and she began to write the names of the men she had slept with in her lifetime. She marked who she had used protection with and who she hadn't. Finally, she wrote that she was terrified this would ruin her future, that she wouldn't even ever be able to have a family of her own. Shortly after venting her dismay in her, into her journal, her cell was raided by police. They took her diary and somehow it got leaked to the press who had an absolute field day. It wasn't long before Amanda was being portrayed in the media as a sex maniac, a slutty party girl with sadistic tendencies. The pages of her diary were published in tabloid after tabloid after tabloid. They were dissected on the nightly news all across the world. Everyone knew that the murderous Amanda Knox had AIDS. At the same time, journalists took a deep dive into the internet, desperate to uncover anything scandalous from Amanda's past. They discovered that her MySpace username was Foxy Noxy. She had been given the nickname in middle school 
on the soccer team because she was fast as a fox. In high school, she thought it was cute and funny and decided to make it her username. It stuck. The media was thrilled to use the name against her. Soon, Foxy Noxie was a household name, and it was synonymous with a raging, sex-crazed killer. Not long after the global media published Amanda's innermost private thoughts, the prison nurse admitted to her that she didn't have AIDS. She hadn't tested positive after all. The police just hoped that if she was told she was dying, she might confess. It didn't matter. Her reputation for being obsessed with sex had already defined who she was to everyone around her. A prison guard began to sexually harass her constantly, asking her what her favorite position was and telling her he wanted to have sex with her. Amanda later said, the prosecution and tabloid media cast me as a femme fatale, a sex-crazed she-devil who murdered my roommate in a drug or jealously fueled rage during a sex game gone wrong. It didn't matter that I had zero history of violence or mental illness or criminal behavior. And that exactly zero DNA evidence placed me at the scene of the crime. The prosecution and the tabloids had already created Foxy Noxie, a figure into which people could project their fears and fantasies, particularly those surrounding female sexuality. And that was enough to convict us. In the meantime, Investigators were busy searching Raphael's apartment. There, the police found damning evidence against Amanda and Raphael. A knife? A knife that matched the description of the murder weapon. The knife was tested, and the DNA results were chilling. Amanda's DNA was found on the handle. Meredith's was found on the blade. At the same time, forensic investigators found Raphael's DNA on a clasp of Meredith's bra. At the same time, though, they took a DNA of a third person. This third person's DNA was found all over the house. It belonged to Rudy, a local Perugian originally from the Ivory Coast. Disturbingly, his semen was also found in Meredith's vagina. Rudy was a known criminal in town. He was notorious for stealing women's purses, committing petty theft, partying, and had even been caught stealing a laptop. He had met both Meredith and Amanda through mutual friends and hung out with them multiple times in group settings. He had never been invited into their apartment. The police began their search for Rudy, but quickly discovered he had fled the country shortly after Meredith's death. One of Rudy's friends just so happened to be a police informant. Unbeknownst to Rudy, the informant contacted Rudy through Skype and asked about the murder. Rudy told his friend that he had indeed been at Meredith's house 
the night of the murder, but that he didn't kill her. He said that the two were going to hook up, but Rudy didn't have a condom, so they didn't get a chance to. He went to the bathroom to clean up and heard Meredith screaming. He went to check on her just in time to see a strange man running from the house. Rudy then found Meredith dead, her throat slashed. According to Rudy, he clung to her, trying to save her, and ended up covered in her blood. Afraid that he would be framed for her murder, he left her there and fled. Before the call ended, though, Rudy said one other thing. He insisted that Amanda Knox was not involved. On November 20th, 2007, Rudy was arrested in Germany and extradited straight to an Italian prison cell. But this wasn't the end for Amanda or Raphael. After all, Amanda's DNA was found on the possible murder weapon. Raphael's was found on her bra. Menini believed that Amanda, Raphael, and Rudy had all worked together to kill Meredith that they tried to coerce her into a drug-fueled orgy, and when she refused, they murdered her. Rudy decided to proceed with a fast-track trial, an option in the Italian court system. It allows Rudy to be tried with limited evidence in exchange for a possible lighter sentence. It was a smart move on Rudy's part. This way, he would not be tried at the same time as Amanda and Raphael. His case could be considered separately from the media massacre that was Amanda and Raphael. In the trial, Rudy testified shockingly. He changed his story from the details that he gave his friend during the Skype call. This time, he said that he did see Amanda there that night after hearing Meredith scream. He ran out and noticed the silhouette of Amanda through the window. Still, Rudy's DNA was evidence enough. It was found all over Meredith's bedroom, on her clothes, her body, her things. His story was hardly believable. He was found guilty for Meredith's murder and sentenced to 30 years in prison. On January 16th, 2009, Amanda and Raphael's trial finally began. During the trial, Amanda testified that she last saw Meredith the afternoon before the murder. The night of the murder, she spent the entire night at Raphael's house. She claimed that during her interrogation, she was coerced into making a false statement. It wasn't enough to prove her innocence. The DNA on the possible murder weapon and bra clasp were just too damning to the jury, and reasonably so. DNA speaks louder than any testimony possibly can. On December 26, 2009, nearly a year after the trial began, the jury convicted both Amanda and Raphael of sexual assault and murder of 21-year-old Meredith Kircher. Amanda was sentenced to 26 years in an Italian prison. Raphael was sentenced to 25. Amanda was left in total despair. 
In her memoir, she recalled just how shocked and horrified she was when she heard the words guilty uttered by the judge. I thought, this is impossible. This is impossible. This is a nightmare. This can't be true. It's not fair. It's not fair. And now, for a quick break. You know what that sound means? It's another episode of Game for a Movie, where we ask, are you game for a movie? Tell me, Andre. There's no special features on that goddamn DVD, all right? Oh, wow. For Hansel, Hansel and Gretel? Hansel and Gretel. You have the DVD you watch it? Yeah. Hansel and Gretel. She basically has sex with it, somehow. No, it, foreplay. Yeah. Yes. She's, she's chair foreplay. They, I mean, they knocked it out of the park, which is why it's my number three. So. Oh! oh. <laughs> yes. I mean, I wouldn't be in it, because this movie doesn't have women. But, you know, that's you why have I was one? right. It has one? You would have that. three lines of dialogue. So it's three. Oh. Okay. So I'm actually going to get, like, I actually get, like, I earn my, my, my four sentences of dialogue rather than, like, here, on a paycheck. You just stood there on the screen. You're a sexy lamp. Anyway, we're not. Phoenix, too. So, no. 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 Because they really hate each other, so we get to enjoy some wonderful comedic scenes of them hating each other so much that they get into physical altercations that include her biting detective ex-detective phillips's dick okay but we don't okay i i know all of those words were english but the way you <laughs> constructed yeah, them i'm lost i'm not flying the races very well for those who haven't rated us or uh, liked or given us a review, don't say that we haven't given you anything of value after listening to this podcast. You now know the difference between an R-rated dick and an NC-17 X-rated dick. You're welcome. <laughs> Thank you guys for listening to Game for a Movie, where we ask, are you game for a movie? We'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. Now, back to the show. Throughout the trial, even with the DNA evidence stacked against her, Amanda held on to hope. When the hope was crushed, so was she. Amanda and Raphael's defense attorneys filed for an appeal right away. In the meantime, Amanda's parents, who were divorced, mortgaged their homes to pay for the defense and legal fees and for the cost of flying back and forth between Italy and the States. Her parents even rented an apartment which they shared between the two families. Amanda's biological, divorced parents and her step-parents. The enormous sacrifice was hard to even comprehend. On November 24th, 2010, the appeals trial began. The defense attorneys suggested that the DNA evidence used at trial was not carefully examined and was possibly tampered with. In response, the judge sent both the knife and bra clasp to a lab to be re-examined for DNA. One of the examiners, Dr. Stephanie Conti, who was utterly horrified by her findings, she watched video of the police searching the crime scene and found that they did not follow protocol in any way. Every piece of possible evidence had been contaminated by carelessness and negligence. In the trial, she said, 
let it be clear how easy it is to leave traces of DNA. You move your hand on your arm, the small amount of fine dust, those are all DNA traces which we spread within the area where we are at, in that particular moment. Therefore, a crime scene must be kept completely sterile. That's not what happened in this case. In the video taken by the forensic police, there was a lot of chaos. You can see clearly a coming and going of people without protective suits. Booties were not changed, and they rarely changed their gloves. In other words, total chaos. It was revealed that the bra clasp with Raphael's DNA was found a staggering 46 days after the crime, and it had been kicked under a rug in Meredith's bedroom. It's extremely possible that Raphael's DNA was simply trace amounts that had landed on the clasp during a careless search of the bedroom. At the time, it was discovered the DNA of the two other men were also found on the bra clasp, and that the police never recorded this information, even though they knew about it. Then came the knife, the supposed murder weapon, the damning piece of evidence that left Amanda Knox behind bars in a foreign prison cell, where she was meant to rot for the next two decades of her life. Forensic examiners found that Meredith's DNA on the blade was so incredibly scarce that it was most definitely trace DNA left by contamination. As it turned out, that very knife was examined at the same time as 50 of Meredith's samples, all in the same place without careful separation of any kind. As a result, the DNA on the knife was found to be caused by contamination and therefore the evidence was inconclusive. Right away, Amanda and Raphael's convictions were overturned. They were free to go that very day. Amanda made the emotional journey back to her hometown of Seattle, able to breathe for the first time since the harrowing day in 2007, when her roommate was found dead in her bedroom. Still, the battle was not yet over. On March 26, 2003, the Italian court threw out Amanda and Raphael's acquittal. They claimed that their inappropriate behavior following the murders, along with Amanda's past sexual encounters, indicated that the couple was guilty of murder. The case was pushed up to the Italian Supreme Court, who found no evidence linking Amanda and Raphael to the crime. They said that Rudy was the sole perpetrator responsible. Today, Amanda Knox is an advocate for the falsely accused and is fighting criminal injustice. She also hosts her own true crime podcast, The Truth About Crime, where she uses her intimate knowledge of the legal system and crime to sell some of the darkest true stories. 
Both Raphael and Amanda have written memoirs on their experience in prison, and both continue to celebrate their freedom to this day. Rudy still denies any involvement in Meredith's murder. Other than being in the house at the time of the crime, he is still serving his 30-year sentence. Many still believe in Amanda's guilt, especially in Italy. It's not that surprising when you think about it. The tabloids smeared her name for years. They made people believe that she was a monster, a murderer, a woman who came to Italy just to tarnish it with violence and dread. After years of reading these headlines, people start to believe them. But can catchy tabloid headlines speak louder than DNA evidence? To the justice system, we certainly hope not. To society, they very well might. Thanks for listening. And remember, you never know what's lurking in the shadows, lingering around the corner, walking past your house at night. So watch out, stay safe, and keep listening. This has been The Jury Room. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Jury Room. I'd like to take a moment of silence in remembrance of Meredith Kircher. Don't forget to get some stickers. There'll be a link in the show notes. Don't forget to go like, subscribe, follow, leave a review anywhere you can for the Jury Room Podcast. Without you guys, I'm nothing. And the show is growing. And I am very thankful for each and every one of you guys. If you don't hear it enough, thank you. Stay safe, and thanks for listening.